The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today because we're going to be talking about a topic that we hear about all of the time, um, and that is eating locally grown food, locally produced food. It's a big consumer trend. But the question remains, is that feasible for everyone in the U.S.? Or is that something that's just a luxury for those who happen to live near cropland? Well, today we have Dr. Elliot Campbell from the University of California, Merced, who's an environmental engineer. And he's just completed a study called The Large Potential of Local Croplands to Meet Food Demand in the United States. And so we're going to be talking about his very detailed research that just came out this week um, that did farmland mapping and shows that actually there is quite a bit of potential for the U.S. to meet U.S. food demand from a local perspective. And I'm really excited to dig into the details. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Professor Campbell. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thanks, Jill. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, before we dive into the findings of your recent research on the feasibility of all Americans to eat a local diet, I'd like to begin with asking you what prompted your research. Was it the Farm Bill of 2014 that spurred the report, or was there some other impetus? Sure, that's a great question. You know, um, most of the research that's done in my lab is, is really outside the realm of food and food sustainability. We're really focused on understanding how people use the land in general and how this interacts with weather and climate. So really kind of more fundamental earth systems kind of questions is what we address. But every so often we find that some of the data that we're generating that's more uh, related to the basic kind of physical and, and biospheric science of the earth also has some really interesting applications. And one thing we were busy doing over the last few years was mapping out cropland areas, where the croplands were and how those land areas were changing over time. It turns out this is a really important issue in understanding weather and climate because how we use the land interacts with how much greenhouse gases are in the atmosphere, exchange of water between the land and the atmosphere, all these kinds of things. Um, So that's what we were busy doing, but in making all these maps, Uh, it occurred to me that they'd be really useful for answering a question about local food that hadn't been answered before, and that is, what is the geophysical capacity for this local food movement? In other words, based on where the croplands are right now and how productive they are and where the people are and how much calories they need to consume, how big could this local food movement be? How big could it grow? And I 
fielded that question to some people that were more in the domain of working on food. And um, one thing you'll you'll get when you talk to scientists uh, in a, in a different area, and you're thinking mm-hmm. about you know moving into that area a little bit, they'll they'll tell you, um, oh, of course not. We've been studying this for years. This is not <laughs> an important question. And and I got some of those responses, and and, and then they'd say, and the answer is, of course, we could we could feed everyone with local food. And, um, and then I asked a, a, another person, and I got the same kind of beginning response. Oh, we've been studying this for years. It's it's already known. Of of course, it, it's a very small potential. It was the, mm. the, the opposite. And and then I noticed that there was actually uh, a lot of uncertainty in this area, and, and no one had ever gone into this before. So it was really sort of uh, by chance that we were developing maps that were really useful for answering this totally unexplored question. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, there are many different groups working, you know, on this issue. The Farm Bill of 2014 did uh, start to in some ways, incentivize a more localization of our food systems. Um, and so there's, you know, there's actually public policy that's coming to bear on this issue. And so your study, I'm sure, will be incredibly helpful. You know, your study observes that there is a broad debate that's ongoing regarding the potential benefits of transitioning to a food system that involves much smaller distances between the areas of production and consumption. And I'd like for you to talk to our listeners about some of those potential benefits, namely, um, you know, the benefits to consumers, maybe even benefits to farmers and to our nation as a whole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the, the debate's really interesting. So our, our study's more focused on what the potential is in terms of how much, how much local food could be done in the U.S. And then where most of the effort has been, this kind of parallel set of studies is, is on, well, if we did do it, would there be you know, positive ramifications or would there be some negative impacts? And so this, the debate that, um, that's going on uh, has many components to it, but a huge one is environmental. So um, one of the sort of initial reactions to the local food movement is, is that this might have some real environmental benefits because you don't have to ship the food so far from the farmlands to where the people are, where they're consuming it. So you consume less energy to do that transportation and you release less greenhouse gas emissions to do that transportation if you don't have to ship food from a continent away, but instead of just maybe a city away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that, that that use of energy to do that shipping of foods is actually a, a pretty small piece of the overall budget for all the sources of, of greenhouse gas emissions. And in mm-hmm. fact, most of the greenhouse gas emissions aren't associated with moving the food from the farm to the people, but really from how we produce the food. And so this, this uh, general argument has sort of moved towards the uh, realm of saying that there, there might not be a, a big benefit to local food in terms of uh, energy consumption and greenhouse gas emissions. There'd be some, but it, it's pale in comparison to some of the other choices we make about food. Whereas the biggest one, yeah, uh, the, the biggest one is really how we choose um, what we eat. So a meat 
or animal product-based diet versus one that's shifted more towards um, plants, um, that's really the big decision for reducing energy and, and greenhouse gas emissions. So this, this story is kind of what's been going on. And, and that's, it, many of your listeners might already be familiar with it because it's been not only in the scientific literature but um, in the popular press too. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, there's a new twist, I think, to this story that might be worth looking into. And um, that's the fact that the local food movement, it's not just about local cheeseburgers and local Twinkies, um, (laughs) but it seems to be doing something pretty novel with respect to making um, uh, fruits and vegetables more exciting, uh, which isn't easy to do. It's pretty hard (laughs) to get people to shift their diets, even when they're you know, having significant health problems or, or other things are going on. It, it's a hard hard nut to crack, getting people it to is. eat more fruits and vegetables. Cheetos versus in. kale, you know, <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. It's a tough competition. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Cheetos are, are pretty good. I'll admit it. <laughs> <laughs> but you walk into a farmer's market, and it's sort of the flip uh, of what you see when you walk into a grocery store, right? Really, the fruits and vegetables are front and center, and, and they mm-hmm. look pretty darn good. And now there's even some initial scientific evidence that um, some of these local food uh, systems, like farmer's markets, are actually um, having some success in getting people to eat more fruits and vegetables and, and maybe shift their diet to this area where we know there's major savings in terms of energy and greenhouse gases. So, um, while these food miles are a really small piece, there may be something worthwhile in pursuing this uh, pursuing this local food movement further from a from an environmental perspective. If it can do this really difficult thing of getting people to eat lower on the food chain. Mm-hmm. Well, and and then there's a term in your research that I want to have you define for us because um, I think this relates to what you're talking about and and also extends it to the idea that consumers might be more concerned about how their food is produced if it's in their neighborhood, if it's, you know, within a 50-mile radius of their home. And that's the idea of a food shed. Can you kind of help us understand that term? Yeah, it's it's really an important issue here. So a food shed is sort of the uh, geographical unit that describes this local food system. So a food shed would be the area in which food is both produced and consumed. And there's no strict definition of what the shape or size of that should be in order to qualify for um, being a local food system. A food shed is can be something you know, quite large or really small. And so in our study, we really did look at a f- whole range of distances from as small mm-hmm. as, say, 50 or, or even 20 miles and up to maybe several hundred miles. So we really looked at a, a range of, of food shed sizes. Um, the food shed, though, it might be more, uh, a lot more, actually, than just uh, producing food and consuming food, but it, it, it one of the exciting things about a food shed is it might lead to uh, um, recycling of nutrients and energy and water between the 
food production systems, the farms, and the consumption areas, the cities. Um, so one of the things we do know about, uh, about food is one of the huge environmental costs comes from how we produce it, not so much from how we move it. And, and one of the challenges with producing food is getting nutrients on the land. So um, right now, a, a great way to do this, or at least an, an economic way to do this, is to use um, fossil fuels, natural gas, to make synthetic fertilizers. Um, looking for alternatives to that would, would mm -hmm. be really exciting. And one alternative might be uh, the use of compost. Compost mm -hmm. can be a fertilizer source, too. Um, and the question is, well, where, where do you get that compost? We know our cities have the potential to produce a lot of compost. Some cities now are even collecting it at the curbside, along with the cans for landfill and recycles. Some, some cities are getting into, the, um, getting into adding a, an, another container for mm -hmm. um, compost. But if you have your city collecting the compost, then you've got to get it to the farms. And if right. those farms are on the other side of the continent or the other side of the planet, well, it's probably not going to happen. You're probably not going to get that city's compost shipped that far, this kind of well, lower it's value heavy. product. That's yeah. one of the things about, you know, compostables. It's often wet. It can be really heavy. And so trucking it long distances is kind of counterproductive if you're trying to have an environmental you know, impact because then you've got all these trucks weighted down, using more fuel, <laughs> clogging up the highways um, to move that compost. But it, like you said, if you have something that's a local system um, that that would you know produce the food fairly locally and then bring that you know compostable you know food waste or organics products back to the source of production that would be incredibly efficient. Um, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking much more to Dr. Elliot Campbell about how national policy is addressing this issue of local food, um, why that is happening, and then we're going to talk much, much more in much more detail about his recently published report and 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 exactly how we might be able to transition our huge national food system, which currently, you know, involves a lot of miles of trucking, into something more local. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. 
Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Um, Our guest today is Dr. Elliot Campbell from the University of California Merced School of Engineering. He's just published a paper called The Large Potential of Local Croplands to Meet Food Demand in the United States. And it answers a very important question that really nobody's been asking. Everybody has been talking about the benefits of eating local and wouldn't it be great if we could, but nobody's really asked can we? I mean, could this be a national trend? And that's what his research um, exposes. And he's done this county by county throughout the entire U.S. And we're going to be diving into his uh, research a little bit more deeply in a moment. But um, one of the things that I think a lot of our listeners are well aware of is that there is a significant consumer trend that's leaning toward local food. Um, Even in, you know, my local grocery store, there's a whole section in the produce aisle that you know, is labeled in big letters, locally grown, and everybody's excited about that. But um, I'd like for you to help our listeners understand how national policy is addressing this issue of local food. What's going on in that arena, Dr. Campbell? Right. Well, you know, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a young movement. I mean, historically, local food was, was how things were done, but we shifted away from local food with Long, longer supply chains, and so um, we have a long history of government supporting the infrastructure that's built around these long supply chains. And so the infrastructure needed for distributing and, and retailing uh, food in these local food systems that we're talking about today um, it is, is pretty thin right now. So mm-hmm. if you look to... Um, the most recent farm bill, there's, there's now um, uh, support going towards building up some of the infrastructure for, say, distributing food um, locally through food hubs, um, additional support to build up more of these farmers markets where, where people can get access to local food. So just core infrastructure really needs to be in place before this can um, happen at, at a much larger scale. And what you've talked about just now is how there's a big consumer trend. So there's certainly a lot of interest from the public, and and it's growing rapidly in terms of how much local food is being uh, consumed in the U.S., but it's still a very small percentage of the overall amount of food that's consumed here. And and part of the reason for that is this, this need for more infrastructure, and that's where we're 
just starting to put in some support from a federal level here in the mm-hmm. U.S. Well, here's one of the questions that I have because, you know, you Everybody has their opinions about how effective or ineffective Congress is, and they're not always responsive to what consumers want and consumer trends. And so I'm wondering, yeah, I'm kind of doubting that that's the reason why they're putting in some federal national policy to support the localization of food systems. Why is it that the federal government is concerned with developing policies around food issues? Is it, you know, looked at as a way to reduce our nation's greenhouse gas emissions, or is it a matter of food security? What problem is the federal government trying to solve by creating local food policies? Yeah, you know, that, that's a great question. And I can't say that I know exactly the answer, but I, I think uh, there's a strong impetus to improve food security. So there are um, plenty of uh, cases where we have uh, an imbalance in trade um, for different types of foods. We're certainly a net exporter of food in the U.S., so we export more calories than we import, but there's there's going to be plenty of categories that have a trade imbalance. Um, so that could be one reason. Another issue is these long supply chains, uh, there's sometimes a case where these can threaten food security. A long supply chain might be susceptible to, you know, any number of things that could disrupt them. So um, certainly there could be a reason um, from a food security perspective. And then finally, there's an idea that uh, local food systems can enhance local economies. So these these would all be good reasons for um, the government to get involved and to support something that, that could have some real positive outcomes in the in the U.S. Now, the other things we were talking about early in your show, some potential environmental benefits, uh, maybe some potential to recycle nutrients, the possibility to um, reduce energy and greenhouse gas uh, emissions. It, it, if these local food systems are somehow successful in getting people to um, be more enticed to eat fruits and vegetables, those I think are interesting issues to a lot of people that are involved in the food movement, but I don't know if those are front and center in terms of why we're seeing more support coming from um, from the federal uh, farm bill for local food. Makes perfect sense. Well, let's dive in uh, more deeply to your recently published report. Um, The paper begins with this statement. Local food systems may facilitate agroecological practices that conserve nutrient, energy, and water resources. Help us understand why local food systems might be more apt to conserve those resources versus our current long-range food systems. Yeah, well, um, that's a great question. And this is really an open question and one that's being debated. Um, Could they have ecological benefits if we um, had more local food here? And we've talked about one reason, um, probably the elephant in the room, which is um, getting people to eat more fruits and vegetables. Um, but there are other reasons, um, too. And out here in California, we have a, a major water crisis going on that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. And um, one potential um, way to reduce some of the strain on our, our water demand is to basically recycle water between uh, cities and the, the farmlands. And we're now to the point where we can treat 
uh, wastewater coming from cities to a, a really um, high level of um, purity. Um, but we can't escape the fact that pumping water has a huge uh, and, and just enormous uh, cost in terms of electricity. Mm -hmm. So if you want to recycle that water for um, other uses, perhaps for um, for farming, then, then you really need to have the farms close to the cities. The same goes with recycling nutrients through, say, compost. Um, and, and, and so these are some potential benefits. Now, it would be easy to go around and survey local farms right now and say, well, geez, that's not happening at this one or that one or this one. Um, but really what we're talking about here is what we could do, you know, what the potential is. I think it would be easy to, you know, look at other kind of fledgling industries. For example, the uh, maybe the first photovoltaic panels ever built probably required an enormous amount of energy just to build the panels because we were just <laughs> trying to figure them out. But that wasn't a reason to scrap this whole idea of solar power. And similarly, with local food, I think right now things are being kind of figured out. It's young, it's small, it's growing quick, but this is a great time for people to get engaged in this debate about what the benefits could be and to try and envision where this local food movement could 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 go. Well, and the exciting thing is I am even aware, and I, I'm sure there are other banks doing this probably, but I know that even Wells Fargo has been investing in small pilot projects in the Bay Area and in Northern California to test some of these systems out and and to to work on the kind of infrastructure and what kind of financing systems might be needed in order to facilitate the growth of this kind of infrastructure. So um, those kinds of things are happening as well as the public policy, which I think is really amazing. Um, you know, your study found, and I'm going to go ahead and give the bottom line of the study, that um, there is the potential to meet as much as 90% of the national food demand with locally produced food. And that is exciting and very encouraging. Let's talk about what it would take from an infrastructure standpoint to make that potential a reality. I mean, is there a huge capital cost involved? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And it's unfortunately a little beyond the scope of what we did in this study, but we've kind of laid the groundwork to answer that question. So I think the first thing you have to do when you're talking about some new approach to organizing what we do here in society is to look at what the scale of it is. Is it going to always be limited to some niche, small activity, or can it really expand and, and, and deliver to a broad segment of our population? And so that's exactly what our maps did. Our maps showed, based on where the existing farmland is and based on where the people are, how many people could be supported by local food. And now we've got the potential to add additional layers to these maps, looking towards what the, the economic constraints that you were just talking about in terms of what kind of infrastructure would be needed and where and what those costs would add up to. Um, Similar work could be done with respect to the potential social and environmental dimensions. But our, our maps kind of provide the foundation now for going on to answer, answering those questions. And I just wanted to point out that in addition to you know, what, what we talk about here, that some of these maps are available um, on my website. So um, if your listeners wanted to go to faculty 
ucmerced.edu slash ecampbell3, or just Googling Elliot Campbell, they'd be able to look at a few maps that show where um, we've got significant potential for local food and, and where there's um, maybe some, some constraints based on the productivity of the land and, and the amount of people in the given area. Well, and I know one of the things that's vexing in California, I live in California too, is that, you know, because of the way that we have expanded, you know, some of our our housing development, we've actually paved over um, what used to be really good cropland. And so, um, you know, as we look to the future, if we're going to be localizing some of these food systems, you know, we need to look at you know, are we going to continue to do that? Or are we going to preserve some of our croplands, you know, as we uh, continue to facilitate a burgeoning population? Um, and that all needs to be a part of, you know, the public policy debate on not just the infrastructure upgrades that we badly need, uh, you know, especially in electricity and water. Some of our infrastructure is so old. But as we put in new infrastructure, and oftentimes local municipalities will require, you know, building developers to help, you know, fund that, if not fund it in entirety, it's an entirety, um, but but maybe that could be factored in. Right now we're looking at the kind of water infrastructure and, and road infrastructure that we need, you know, around these building, building developments, but maybe we need to add, you know, locally grown food infrastructure to those, you know, development contracts as well. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking much more about some of the uh, agronomic trends that might uh, be impacted by food localization. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Get ready for some lively discussion on Barely Controlled Radio with Jeff Reed. From sports to relationships to current events and more, pretty much anything is on the table. Besides being a place kicker for the Super Bowl champion Pittsburgh Steelers, Jeff Reed is also a journalist, blogger, and opinionist. And he's ready to talk to you and tackle the issues that you've been wanting to talk about. Tune in to Barely Controlled Radio every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Glad that you've all tuned in. Just in case you've only just joined us, let me catch you up. Today we're talking with Dr. Elliot Campbell from the University of California, Merced, um, who has just published a paper called The Large Potential of Local Croplands to Meet Food Demand in the United States, which for all of us who are excited about locally grown food is a great study because it shows that, yes, this can be ubiquitous throughout the United States. Um, Dr. Campbell, you note that in your in your report that there's been a decline in locally produced and distributed food over the past several decades in the U.S., which does not come as a surprise to anybody, um, and that you note that the decline is associated with demographic and agronomic trends, resulting in extreme pressures on agroecological systems that, if unchecked, could severely undermine recent national policies focused on food localization. And what I'd like for you to discuss, if you would, is to help our listeners understand the demographic and agronomic trends to which you're referring in that statement. Oh, sure. So, you know, one big trend that's um, pretty widely understood is this shift of cropland in the U.S. There was a major abandonment of agriculture land in the eastern U.S. as as we expanded our cropland in the midwestern U.S. So this essentially moved a, a crop cropland away from a, from huge population centers um, in, in the northeastern U.S. region. So that that's one trend. Um, but you also see a continuation of this trend. Uh, at a micro scale uh, across the U.S. is suburbanization takes over croplands that that happen to be located around cities. You were mentioning um, how you've seen this firsthand, and and this happens in California and other places, too. So it's not just this this kind of East Coast to Midwest story. The shifting and the location of croplands is something that's happening everywhere. Uh, That's one trend. Another big one is just the sheer growth of our cities, especially our coastal cities. Um, As the populations get larger and larger, you might start to wonder, well, how big can these cities get until maybe they're too big to feed, at least to feed locally? Mm -hmm. And so going into this work, that was one of the things that we expected to see, that as the cities get bigger as you have these major shifts in cropland from the east to the Midwest and also just general loss of cropland around cities, that the potential to support cities with local food might decline. Right. You know, a lot of our listeners are very into municipal solid waste. We have people who listen to us who are into recycling, who are into composting. And in the world of municipal solid waste, food waste is getting a lot of attention. It's often wet, as we mentioned earlier, heavier to transport than other types of garbage. And it also doesn't work well in energy from waste facilities. If it's landfilled, it creates methane gas, which of course is a more potent green greenhouse gas than carbon. And as you mentioned earlier, when we 
remove food waste from the, you know, from the uh, uh, earth and put it in our waste stream, we're losing nutrients that could be returned to our croplands. So talk to us about how local food systems might reduce food waste, both on the production side of our food equation and on the consumer end. Yeah, well, the the big opportunity here, I think, is is what you're alluding to, is that the, this uh, potential source of nutrients, these composts, are heavy and 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 low value in, in general compared to other things that are shipped. So um, we need the the farms to be close to the cities in order for this recycling of nutrients to work out. That's kind of a key issue there, um, and it's it's both. A, a, a solution for the farms and a solution for the cities, of course, because uh, we just have um, this issue where we're running out of places to put our waste. Um, the greenhouse gas emissions that you get from landfills is another big issue. So there's a, a lot of potential uh, synergies here um, with this waste issue you're bringing up. It solves the problem of cities. It solves the key issue for farms, um, especially from their greenhouse gas budget. If you look at the overall sources of greenhouse gas emissions from the production of food, it, it's in many cases you'll see it's this the production of fertilizers that, that can be a driving um, piece of that overall budget. And when you look at local food, the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, yeah, there's reduced food miles. We're not shipping the food as far. Um, that seems to be the what you would initially think. It turns out to be small. Um, but this issue about waste and recycling nutrients, that can hit on a much bigger piece. And again, mm-hmm. this isn't something that's necessarily being done today. If you went out and went from local farm to local farm, you, you might not see in all cases that they're tapping into um, compost from cities. But this is sort of a, a, a major opportunity and one that's well worth looking into further. Well, and have done shows on Go Green Radio in the past that talks about, you know, the diminishing nutritional value of our food because of lost nutrients. You know, when you put a fossil fuel-based fertilizer on soil, it isn't as good for the soil and hence the plants that grow in that soil from a nutritional standpoint as it would be to put, you know, nutrient-rich compost onto it. So um, I'm really excited, you know, about this potential. But, you know, when I was researching for your show, I let myself kind of get out of the green geek side of my brain, which is huge. And I think about this stuff all the time. And I put on my mommy hat. You know, I've got three kids. And when I think about this issue from a purely consumer standpoint, there's three primary concerns that I have about a wholesale shift in our nation's food systems. And I'd like for you to give us your thoughts on each of these. And the first is cost. I'm wondering if localization would drive consumer prices up. I mean, many of our nation's families are already struggling with food prices. We've got an unprecedented number of people on food stamps right now. Um, What are your thoughts on the consumer cost piece of localization? Yeah, that's so important. Um, And there's, there's a lot going on with the price of food right now. There's, there's these huge competing constraints, right? We've got, Biofuels now in the U.S. consuming roughly a third of all the corn we produce. That's a huge constraint. Uh, we have growing populations around the world 
and populations that are becoming more affluent around the world. So they're eating higher on the food chain for the first time because they can finally afford it. And that's making a huge demand on our cropland resources and affecting prices. And then added on to all this, you have uh, this emerging problem of climate change and how that will impact our croplands. There's a lot of indications that the yields, the productivity of our lands could get hit substantially as the, the climate warms, particularly in the United States. So the price of food is, is such a huge issue. And thinking about how uh, shifting to local food could affect the cost of food is is a, a first-order issue and one that has to be investigated right away. Um, we made the maps, I think, that can help understand what those prices would be because they'll help understand, help us to understand where the investments in infrastructure might need to be made. Um, but it, it's hard to say right now exactly what those costs would be. At the same time, there's potential for benefits, again, supporting local economies, jobs. These are all things that could be part of a, a local food system. So it's, a, it's an important question. It's rich and complex. There's potential benefits, potential costs, um, but it's, it's an open question and one that's, that needs to be looked into. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thought that came to mind, of course, was nutritional content. I mean, that's something that I'm always concerned about when feeding my family. How would localization impact the nutritional value? Or maybe would it impact it at all, uh, impact the nutritional value of the food that I can access? Wow. Yeah, that, that's also another great question. And from a, from a you're, like you said, putting on your mom hat, that's that's kind of first and foremost, right? We mm -hmm. want to feed our families healthy food. Um, you know, I have children too and, and, uh, and really uh, take a lot of pride in bringing them healthy uh, vegetables to the dinner table. So this is something I think about a lot too. Um, I'm not as uh, up on the science of the nutritional aspects. I know there there have been a, a, there has been a bit of work on um, organic produce, and there's some skepticism now about the extent to which the nutritional value uh, is is different. Um, there's no doubt that organic foods have a, a an, an an important impact on environmental quality. There there maybe are some questions about the nutritional benefits, but instinctively we we feel that there are. I certainly do. And mm -hmm. with local food, it's it's hard to imagine that there wouldn't be nutritional value to food that's eaten relatively um, recently since it was picked versus food that has to endure these long supply chains or, or um, packaging and preservatives to make the uh, to make the trip. So you know, I think that's also an open question. But um, my personal feeling as a parent, too, is that um, my family is doing better when I'm serving them local food. Mm -hmm. I think that makes perfect sense. And, you know, it's something that we'll just have to, you know, continue to study. The, the other concern that I had, and this is, you know, <laughs> I'm sure it's not just something that happens to people in the Bay Area, but we are such a beautiful cultural mosh pit here. I mean, we are just, we have every kind of food you could ever want to put your hands on. Would localizing our food systems diminish our access to a wide variety of foods that help to meet, you know, cultural and ethnic preferences? Jill, that, that's a great question. And in fact, this is the first time I've heard this question, although I imagine it, 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 it 
possibly been raised before. Um, yeah, that that my um, my interaction with food <laughs> is, is not you know a broad survey of all the grocery stores and all the farmers markets, but my interaction is that I've come in uh, to contact with much more diverse foods when I've participated in CSAs, you know, a, a weekly box of food that comes to my house versus, um, versus the, um, the foods that I'm able to uh, find at grocery stores. So I think it could go both ways. I mean, there, there certainly could be reasons to um, think that these local food systems would limit the diversity of foods. But I think that we've really only um, tapped into uh, – barely tapped into the range of foods that we could um, could get from local food systems. I think one of the interesting things that um, people do with local food systems is, is work on a variety of crops and, and, and with these annual um, crop rotations as well as alternative ways to deal with problems with pests and problems with nutrients. So in mm-hmm. some ways, these kind of systems might increase the diversity of foods. Now, it, it would you'd be hard pressed to find a pineapple growing, you know, in, in a lot of climates and yep. in a lot of in a lot of periods of time. So there's no doubt that there'll be, um, you know, limitations there. But uh, to a large extent, I don't think uh, most people would would do a wholesale shift. Um, I think uh, uh, at least shifting a, a chunk of your diet to local food might allow you to preserve or even enhance this diversity uh, Mm -hmm. and still maybe hang on to the pineapple or coffee (laughs) or chocolate that you still um, find to be an important part of uh, living. Right. Well, well said. And we're going to take a quick commercial break on that. But when we come back, we have much, much more with Dr. Elliot Campbell. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in the business of living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success, no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Uh, Dr. Campbell, there's a question that was kind of burning in the back of my mind as I was reading your research. You know, when you say that 90% of our U.S. food demand could be met by locally produced food, I was wondering if your per capita food consumption assumptions were based on models uh, about what Americans actually are consuming <laughs> or what the USDA says we should be consuming? Because I have a feeling there's quite a bit of disparity between those two. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. Diet really matters in terms of not just um, what we were talking about in terms of energy and greenhouse gas emissions, but diet also matters in terms of how much land you need to support a single person. And we did take a look at different diets in our study. Um, we, we looked at three um, diets that we think would sort of span the range of possibilities. And one was what the USDA recommends in terms of a diet that's balanced with different food groups. Um, and then we also looked at two extreme cases, one that was uh, a plant-based diet and another that was more of what we call the meat-intensive diet. Um, in terms of knowing where these three diets sit um, for the U.S. general population, I'd imagine that we're somewhere between the, the standard and the meat-intensive diet. In, in terms of the, the global diets, the U.S. is sort of famous for having really high meat consumption, so, so we'd be shifted a little bit towards this meat-intensive diet that we investigated. But yeah, we, we looked at all three, and as you'd expect, the, um, the, the meat-intensive diet um, would put a little bit more of a constraint. So for example, we, um, if we looked at San Diego, um, we'd see that a third of the population um, could be supported uh, within 50 miles using the standard U.S. diet but about half of the population um, could be supported with a plant-based diet. So there's uh, some potential to um, not only improve the environmental impact, if that's what your interest is, um, but, but uh, also to improve the uh, potential for local food, if, if that's what your interest is, um, in terms of thinking about what diet you choose. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to blow the whole research paper for everybody because I would love for people to check it out. But just in case, you know, we have some listeners who want to get to the bottom line, which U.S. cities have the greatest potential to feed their residents with locally produced food? And on the flip side, which U.S. cities have the least potential, according to your study? Right. That's a great question. So the cities that um, consistently did well are the small to um, uh, medium-sized cities. The mega cities are, are, are huge population centers um, is where we started to see the problems, especially those that were coastal. Um, not in all cases. So San Francisco, it, it really didn't matter um, what the radius is we looked at. It, it, it consistently could support 100% of the population. Uh, but there were others like New York um, and Los Angeles where 
the size of the city, um, the competition between other adjacent cities, um, and the extent of cropland all made those cities have less potential. And you would kind of expect that. And there have mm -hmm. been previous studies that have kind of looked at individual cities or smaller areas that, that showed that to be the case. What was really surprising about our results was that at a national scale, the potential was huge, like you were saying, 90%. And mm -hmm. even some of these large cities um, actually did pretty well. So New York at 100 miles could beat a third of its population. That's a lot of people. Los Angeles mm -hmm. at 100 miles could feed 50% of its population. So these are all uh, pretty impressive numbers that show that this doesn't have to be a niche market. If we wanted to, if there were enough people, if the infrastructure was there, and if this debate about the environmental and social and economic uh, dimensions of local food shows us that it, it's, it's a net positive, then we could scale this much bigger than it currently is. Mm -hmm. There's one other issue that was burning in my mind, and it's only sort of touched upon in the research, but I have to ask – you know, we are a net exporter of food. Much of the world depends on our food, and American ag makes a lot of money on the global market. How would localizing our food systems impact our exports and, furthermore, our economy? Oh, that's a great question. And, you know, coming for, uh, I'm generally working, as you said, in uh, environmental engineering. We're working on these weather and climate models. So, I could get into some trouble by uh, stepping a little outside my area and commenting on economics, <laughs> but I'm going to do that anyway. Um, yeah, ex U.S. exports of, of, of food certainly have an impact on global economies, on, on the prices of food. Um, but one of the real challenges uh, in the world of um, food prices, prices is, is with uh, people who are food insecure. These are people that make about a dollar a day. And oftentimes, um, these people that are, are around the world, often in uh, less developed countries, um, they rely on um, selling food, on selling agriculture products for their incomes. And one of the possibilities is, is that if the price of some of these com agriculture commodities that they sell increases, it improves their wages and they end up doing better. So how this might change uh, prices at a global scale by maybe exporting less is, is an important question. It's probably one we already have some data on by looking at maybe what happened with corn. You know, a third mm -hmm. of our corn harvest now is, is going towards um, uh, domestic consumption of fuel. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so there's, there's, there's plenty of, um, you know, case studies of, of what might happen. But, uh, yeah, it's an important issue. I think it's one that could have a benefit for, you know, roughly a billion people on the planet who are food insecure, but, but there could be potential negative outcomes, too. It's, it's all worth looking into further. Well, and if we begin to make this transition smartly with, you know, a lot of planning and, and uh, taking it in step by step, we should be able to project a little bit more 
more accurately as we go through this process what those ramifications will be and avoid the you know the off-use term uh, the the law of unintended consequences but uh, Dr. Elliot or Dr. Elliot Campbell has been our guest today and thank you Dr. Campbell for being on google him so that you can find his study and um, as always folks we're going to be here same time same place next week with more go green radio until then have a great week and do something in your life to go green Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.